The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We are now in Luke chapter 3. So far we've covered uh, the preparation and birth of John the Baptist, who would prepare the way of the Messiah. And then we also covered the preparation of the birth of the Messiah, Jesus himself, the virgin birth. And Luke has been alternating those accounts, going to John the Baptist and then going back to Jesus, so on and so forth. And if you haven't noticed, Luke, who wrote this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the early 60s, maybe 30 years or so after Jesus died and went to heaven, Luke has been putting a big emphasis on the testimony and perspective of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So when Luke wrote his gospel... Matthew, let's see, if Luke wrote his gospel at the beginning of the 60s, Matthew had already been written. Matthew was written in the early 40s. So the, the gospel of Matthew is out. It's being circulated. Mark is already out. That came out in the 50s. And now Luke is writing his. His will come out in the early 60s. So it could be that the Christian community or a lot of folks were familiar with the accounts of Matthew and Mark. And so when people receive this new gospel, in the 60s, and they started reading it, and especially if they were familiar with Mark and Matthew, what jumped out, no doubt, was, wow, I didn't know this about Mary, because it's not in Matthew, in the birth accounts. The birth accounts and the preparation of the Messiah and the John the Baptist in Matthew, the emphasis is on Joseph and his perspective. The angel comes to Joseph in Matthew. The angel comes to Mary in Luke. The angel actually came to both of them you're getting two different perspectives, both historically true. Taking them all together, we see how it actually all happened together, and we get a fuller account. But Luke definitely is writing with a specific purpose that was somewhat distinct and unique and a little different than what Matthew wrote, complimenting Matthew, but also to fill in some of the detail that maybe Matthew didn't address. And also because Luke has a specific audience in mind. Remember who his audience was? He was writing for this gentleman named Theophilus. Whoever, it was a real man, don't know much about him, but that's who Luke is writing to. And Luke promised to Theophilus, as he writes these 24 chapters, in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Theophilus, I want you, I'm writing these things down so that you may know the exact truth. That's what he said, the exact truth about these things I've been telling you about Jesus. I want you to know the exact truth about this Jesus. That was Luke's intent for Theophilus. That was definitely Luke's intent for the wider reading audience, whether they were Christians or unbelievers. And in God's wisdom and providence, God knew that the audience would be people all throughout church history. God's intention was we would be the audience as well. So there is direct application for us. As we read the Gospel of Luke, God wants us to, quote, know the exact truth, end quote. Luke chapter 1, verse 4, the exact truth. That's a promise that Luke made. So Luke is exacting as he's writing his gospel. Exacting. He is selective. He is deliberate. He is factual. He's doing his homework. In addition to that, he's led by the Spirit of God himself, at times getting direct revelation. He is exacting. What is Luke communicating to us? He's communicating the, the exact truth about Jesus Christ. Which leads to a bigger question, well, so what? Who's Jesus? Well, 
It's Christmas. Christmas is about Jesus. Do we really know what Jesus is all about? Why did Jesus come? Why was Jesus born? What's the big deal about Jesus? Well, Luke gets to that. I think there's a crescendo in Luke's gospel, in my opinion. At least this is the verse I think of, if I could pick. Because John's gospel had a purpose statement at the end of his gospel where he said, I have written these things. I've written down these seven miracles so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and believing in him you might have eternal life. Luke gave a purpose statement. I think uh, Mark reaches a crescendo in Mark 20, 10, 20, 45 and explains why Jesus came into the world. Jesus, the Son of Man, came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Mark 10, 45. I think there's a crescendo in Matthew as well. And that's I think that's all of Matthew chapter 12. Kind of a, a purpose statement where it highlights the very purpose of who Jesus is and why he came. And then Luke, I think the same thing, reaches this crescendo in this purpose statement of who is Jesus? Why did he came, come into the world? Why was he born? Why are you writing this down, Luke? Why are you going to such great lengths and detail to be exacting and amassing all these witnesses and amassing all these facts and evidence historically to prove who Jesus was? Well, because of who he is and who he claimed to be. So that's Luke 19. Luke 19 says this, uh, and actually it's a statement from Jesus. Uh, Jesus talking to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the wee little man, a wee little man was he. This, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, for the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, has come, come into the world, he was born, why? To seek and to save that which was lost. Boy, what a purpose statement. That is the meaning of Christmas. What is this all about? Why did Jesus come 2,000 years ago? Why was he born? Well, according to this, according to Jesus himself, do not be mistaken, he came to seek. Notice he is the aggressor, or he's the initiator. He's seeking. Who's the seeker? Jesus is the seeker. John 4 calls God the Father the seeker. Are you seeker sensitive? I am. I am sensitive to Jesus the seeker and God the Father the seeker. And the Holy Spirit is also called the seeker. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus came for the purpose of, and I, you need to understand this the right way, because this is being distorted. The meaning of this simple, beautiful verse is being distorted in evangelical American Christianity and really across the world. So sadly, it's hard to believe, because when you read this historically, we think, oh, Jesus came in the world to save sinners, and that means individual sinners from their sin, like to give them eternal life, to forgive them of their sin, past, present, and future, to to allow them, enable them to be born again and adopted into the family of God. And this is personal salvation. And they're given eternal life and they get the Holy Spirit and now they're in the family of God and they're transferred from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And that they have a secure future in Christ and the Father for all eternity. When they die, they go immediately to heaven. That's how I always understood this verse. And more and more people, influential Bible teachers, are saying, no, it's not talking about individual salvation. You need to get rid of that notion. That's misguided and misunderstood. It's talking about corporate salvation. Group salvation. This isn't even person this has nothing to do with the forgiveness of sin. So that's a prominent view, gaining ground in the Christian world, in many of our churches, and we need to expose it for what it is. An attack on the gospel. 
So let's just take this at face value. Why did Jesus come into the world? Jesus came to seek and to save. I think about my life. For 19 years, I was not looking for God. You know what I was doing? I was running from God. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, going to Christian church, going to Christian schools by Christian brothers and sisters and Christian parents and Christian leaders and guiders, uh, mentors in my life. Totally, it was just pagan across the board. And I, I look back and I'm like, man, it's amazing that I got saved. How did that happen? Because as parents, you try to do everything you can to get your kids to do the right thing and get them in the right direction and, and set their life out and make their path for them so they make the right decision. I'm thinking nobody did that for me. Why? Because I wasn't in charge. Because what was Jesus doing? Oh, he was seeking me. I was running. He was seeking. I was running fast. Praise God, he ran faster. Age 19, what did he do? He saved me with the simple gospel, made me a new creature, born again. That's the purpose. That's what Luke wants. Going back to Luke chapter 1. Theophilus, that's what I want you to know. I want you to know who Jesus is, and I want you to know the exact truth about him so that it is not, there's no question in your mind. Because there were, no doubt, Theophilus being an influential person in that area, he may have been hearing and getting subjected to questions about Jesus Christ and the legitimacy of Christianity. And, oh, that's, isn't that that weird offshoot, occultic, twisted, distorted version of Judaism, those, those crazy Christians, and that, that so-called Messiah that got crucified? And, wait, I thought only criminals who were guilty got crucified? I thought only the worst of the worst of guilty people got crucified. Who knows what Theophilus was hearing that would undermine his understanding and confidence in the Gospels? That's why Luke is writing this. Exact truth, and he's amassing the data. He's amassing the evidence. That's what he's been doing for three chapters, and so that's what we saw last week. One of his lines of evidence that Jesus is indeed the Messiah who came in to seek and to save that which was lost is because the evidence of prophecy, Old Testament prophecy. The Old Testament prophets had laid out and predicted from the time of Genesis 3.15 that Messiah was coming to overcome sin and to be a savior of the world. And as history went on, for hundreds and even thousands of years, God gave more detail about that coming Messiah and what He would look like, what His credentials would be, what family line He would come from, who He descended from, all of these important things. And so that's what Luke is saying. And so uh, Jesus, the Messiah, fulfilled clearly fulfilled all kinds of prophecy. One of those was that there would be a predecessor, one who would come before Him in the spirit of Elijah and proclaim Make way for the coming of the Lord. And that was John the Baptist. That's why Luke spends so much time on John the Baptist. It was clearly a supernatural work of God. So that's part of the evidence. Really, Luke is just laying out 24 chapters of the credentials that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And the true Messiah, the true Jewish Messiah who would be the Savior of the world, one of the credentials is he had to have a forerunner in the spirit of Elijah in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures like Malachi, who had come just prior to him proclaiming to the people, prepare the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist fulfilled that in detail to a T. Just That was another line of evidence. So that was last week if you were not here. Jesus is the Messiah. He is who we say He is. He fulfills all the qualifications. He has all of the credentials. So now Luke is going to give us two more credentials verifying and validating that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the only Savior of the world. Here are the two credentials, and they are in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, one of Jesus' credentials that He is indeed the true Messiah was how His, his ministry was inaugurated by God the Father Himself at His baptism. 
that's one credential. The second credential is listed there in 23 to 38. If you look at it carefully, you'll notice, oh, that's a genealogy. Yucky. And if you have the fortitude and the patience and the diligence, and you actually read verses 23 to 38, you would come up with 77 names. That's a lot. I'm not going to read all 77 names now. As a matter of fact, genealogies are typically boring and irrelevant, so we'll skip that and get to the good stuff in uh, Luke 4. How's that sound? Oh, good. I heard somebody say no. Absolutely not. I was hoping I wouldn't hear an amen. Wait, what does the Bible say? Second uh, Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture, except for genealogies, is God-breathed. No. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable that we can actually learn something. You mean I can learn something from a genealogy? Yeah. Okay, but is it going to be exciting? Maybe. Well, is it going to be relevant? I don't know. I hope so. So we're actually going to look at the genealogy. As a matter of fact, this genealogy is very important. Uh, Luke put it in there for the purpose of to show us the exact truth establishing Jesus is the Messiah. And Luke thought this was vitally important. This needed to be known. So we're actually going to look at some highlights. I can't go over the whole genealogy, uh, the 77 names from verse 23 to 38. I don't personally don't think genealogies are boring in the Bible. Like you engineers out there, you probably like studying genealogies, I would imagine. Or I would hope you would. I'm not an engineer, but I study genealogies like I'm an engineer. Genealogies are all over the Bible. Here's a question. Don't answer it out loud because you could expose yourself by giving the wrong answer. Pop question. Which passage is more important? The genealogy in Luke chapter 3 or John chapter 3 where it talks about the gospel? Which chapter is more important? I'll answer it for you. They are equally important. A lot of Christians would say, no, John chapter 3, man, that's John 3.16. That's way more important than a genealogy. Or what's more important, the book of Romans or Luke chapter 3 and the genealogy? Oh, the book of Romans for sure. No. They're equally important. We're going to learn very significant and important things. Um, but it, as far as genealogies go, I'm not going to go through them all, but we're introduced to genealogies right at the beginning of your Bible. Genesis chapter 4 has a genealogy. Um, Genesis chapter 5 has a, the whole chapter is a genealogy. Genesis chapter 11 is a genealogy. Genesis chapter 49 at the end of the book of Genesis is one of the most important, I think. It's kind of a genealogy. Uh, it's, laid, it's a different kind of a genealogy, but it's uh, Israel or Jacob just before his death. And he talks to all of his 12 sons, and he mentions their name, and then he gives them either a blessing or a curse or both. That was Jacob, the father of Israel. From those 12 sons would come all of the Jews, all of the Israelites. So in Jesus' day or John the Baptist's day or in Luke's day, if you were a Jew, Genesis 49 was absolutely vitally important. Keep in mind that it was about 2,000 years old at the time. But you knew what tribe you were from. You knew if you came from the loins of Judah or Reuben. That was part of your identity. So this is vitally important. So those are the two big, so let's go back to Luke chapter 3, two big credentials validating once again that Jesus is indeed the coming Messiah. And that's, um, first we'll look at 21 and 22. That's the baptism of Jesus. 
That is the inauguration of his ministry. That's the, ble- the formal blessing and announcement from God the Father himself. And then the genealogy itself becomes uh, qualification. So let's look at Genesis or uh, Luke chapter 3, 21 to 22, uh, this qualification, the baptism of Jesus. The baptism is mentioned elsewhere. It's a little lengthier and gives more detail in some of the other passages. But Luke has a purpose, and here's what it says. Uh, the last time we saw Jesus, he was 12 years old. Now we go 18 years. Fast forward at the beginning of his ministry. Verse 21. Credential number one, Jesus' baptism, the pronouncement of the Father. Now, when all the people were baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist began his ministry. He began his ministry before Jesus began his ministry. John the Baptist, from the best we can tell, he had a baptism ministry that lasted about six months. It probably overlapped at the very end with the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So for months and months, he's down there by the Jordan River, preaching, calling people out. The word is getting out. And if you're a Jew, if you're an obedient Israelite, if you want to be in the plan of Yahweh, then you got to go down and listen to this guy who sounds like a prophet, maybe even be the Messiah for all we know, and do what he says. Repent and get baptized. Most Jews and Israelites were doing that. The leadership was not. But anyway, that's the context. Verse 21, now when all the people, except for the Pharisees, they listened to John, they questioned John, they resisted John. Now, when all the Jews or the Israelites or all the people, except for the Pharisees and the leadership, were baptized by John the Baptist for not a Christian baptism, but a baptism of preparation, a baptism of repentance. Baptism, we talked about last week, is baptizo. That's the Greek word. It means to get dunked, to immerse. That's why we do Christian baptism by getting dunked and immersed. Jesus said, if you're a Christian, you get baptized by immersion. You get dunked. That's what the word means, not sprinkle. It's in the Bible, and it's after you believe. After you understand, we don't baptize babies, they don't understand the gospel. You're born again, you get saved, you hear the gospel, you repent, and then you get baptized. You get baptized because you're saved, not to get saved. And it's a symbol, it's a living metaphor to all who watch and witness your baptism, that I am cleansed in Christ, that I have died in Christ, I've risen in Christ. Very important. So all the people were being baptized by John for this baptism, this preparatory baptism, identifying with John the Baptist who was pointing to the Messiah, in obedience to Yahweh, the true God, then Jesus also was baptized. And there was a question, well, John's calling people to repent. Jesus didn't need to repent. He didn't. He was sinless. Then why do you need to get baptized? Because John the Baptist brought that up. Well, Jesus, wait a minute. You're the Messiah. I am not going to baptize you. You baptize me. And Jesus said, in order to fulfill all righteousness, John, this is the right thing to do. You're right. I have no sin. I'm not getting baptized because of sin. Baptism doesn't eradicate sin anyway. Baptism is strictly a symbol. So, this is what God wanted. There's a lot of reasons I think Jesus got baptized. Number one, Jesus' own words. Why did Jesus get baptized if he wasn't sinful? He said, he gave us the reason, to fulfill all righteousness, to do the right thing. Why did Jesus come? To be a substitute for sinners. These sinners are getting baptized. These sinners are repenting from sin. I will be the substitute of these sinners. I want to identify with sinners. What does baptism mean? Identification. I want to identify with these sinners. Scripture later tells us from Paul, after he died and rose again, that Christ, Jesus, became sin. He's identifying with sinners as their substitute. That's why he's the Lamb of God. And that's why he gets baptized. Jesus was also baptized 
And while he was praying, so Jesus is praying, and it's present tense, ongoing. Jesus, so as John the Baptist is dunking him, and he's coming up, he's probably still in the Jordan River, and he comes up out of the water, and he's praying, and he's articulate, and he's talking to God the Father. That's who he's praying to, his Father. Jesus knows what's going on here. He knows this is the beginning of his ministry. He hasn't done a miracle for 30 years. He has never done a miracle in his life. He probably never preached a sermon in his life as far as we know, at least not a public one of recognition. Jesus knows that he's the Messiah. He knows he has a special relationship with the Father. He knows the significance of what's going on, and he's praying. He's talking to the Father, and as he's praying and communing with the Father, all of a sudden a supernatural miracle happens. Heaven was opened. What does that look like, Pastor Cliff? I have no idea. And this was public. There were probably all kinds of people around. It was broad daylight, and there's John the Baptist and other people maybe in line to get baptized, and people are intrigued, and they're watching, and then all of a sudden heaven is open. Do those other people see heaven open? We don't know. There are times where things like that happen, but only like Paul was allowed to see the image or hear the voice or see the sky open. We don't know how public it was, but the heaven was open. What does that mean? God the Father was pulling back the veil is what it means because he's about to make an audible announcement. A couple other things when he opened heaven. First of all, verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit came down from heaven. That's the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uncreated, co-equal, co-eternal for all eternity. They existed in eternity past with perfect fellowship with themselves long before they created human beings, long before they created angels, perfectly content within themselves. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then they created man, and man became sinful, and then God had a plan for salvation and redeeming them, and each of the persons of the Trinity had a role, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father would said the Son and the Spirit. Jesus would come as the Savior. The Holy Spirit would be the one who would come to empower Jesus in his ministry. Why did Jesus not do any miracles up to this point? Because the Spirit of God had not come upon him to empower him like Isaiah predicted. Isaiah predicted that God would send the Spirit of God upon him to do miracles and to preach. That hadn't happened yet. So this is the formal inauguration of his ministry with the formal giving and anointing of the Spirit of God that would empower Jesus for his ministry as Messiah. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, by the way, is invisible. There are religions that tell us they believe in the Holy Spirit, but he looks like and feels like a man, and he has flesh and bones like a man. That would be Mormonism. No. The Holy Spirit doesn't have a structure like a man or a human body. He's a spirit. A spirit hath not flesh and bones, said Jesus. But the Holy Spirit that cannot be seen by men, the Spirit is like the wind. You can't see him, but you can see what he does sometimes, the aftermath of the fruits of what he does. But here God makes an exception and allows the Holy Spirit to take on some kind of an incarnation, a theophany, if you will. That's what God does at times. God the Father is a spirit. He has no body. He's infinite. The Holy Spirit is spirit and has no body. Before Jesus was born of Mary, he had no body. He was a spirit. Now Jesus has a body, and he's still infinite somehow, and omnipresent somehow. I don't understand that, but anyway. So here the Spirit of God is allowed to be manifest so that he can literally be seen. And the Holy Spirit comes down out of heaven from the Father and descends upon Jesus right there in the middle of his prayer, in the middle of baptism, and it says the Holy Spirit came down in bodily form. Well, what do he look like? It says like a dove. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit was a dove. It says he was like a dove. 
So was it like a real animal? I don't know. It just says like a dove. Or was it amazing heavenly clouds that took the shape of a dove? I don't know. It just says like a dove. But it was something literal, something tangible. It was something that could be seen. It was something that if you saw it, you'd say, oh, that's a dove. And then what's the meaning of a dove? Well, he doesn't say the meaning of a dove. He just says that's what happened. That came down, was anointed with the dove. Uh, we see the dove in Scripture in Noah's flood. God used the dove to bring rescue to the eight people. In the aftermath of judgment, we see the dove as a sacrificial animal in the Levitical system. Jesus himself referred to doves and said that they are gentle, and you need to be gentle like a dove. So maybe all of those things are being incorporated here, that this, would, this is the spirit in which uh, Jesus would be endowed by the Holy Spirit. He would be also the dove uh, speaks of purity as well because that's why it was used as a sacrifice, a pure animal. So Jesus is pure. Jesus is gentle. Did he say those things? He did. He said, I am gentle. This would characterize his ministry. He would have an incredible supernatural patience with sinners unlike any other human in history. The dove came down, sanctioning his empowering for ministry. And then get this, a voice came out of heaven. A voice came out. Do you know that only three times in Jesus' ministry, according to the Gospels, only three times a voice from God the Father came out of heaven that spoke to Jesus or about Jesus. The first one is right here at the beginning of his ministry. And the next time, the last time it happens is at the end of his ministry, the week he died. And then there's only one other time that we know of, and that was at the transfiguration, and that was pretty close to the end of his ministry. So for the most of Jesus' ministry, God the Father wasn't audibly calling shots from heaven down to Jesus. Oh, okay, take a left, Jesus, run for the hills. Here they come. How was God the Father talking to Jesus during the three and a half years of his ministry, just like God talks to us? Do you know that in 53 years of my human life, I've never heard an audible voice from God, ever. And in the 30 years I've been a Christian, I've never heard the audible voice of God. Is God alive? Yes, he's the living God. Does God speak? Absolutely. Does he speak to his people? Very clearly. Does he do it regularly? All the time. How does he do it? First and foremost, through his word. That's how God speaks. How else does he speak? Through the indwelling spirit of God. And the indwelling spirit of God uses the word of God to speak to us. So literally, when we meditate in our hearts and we read scripture, God is speaking to us. Do we speak to God? Absolutely. It's called through prayer and meditation. This is true. This is real. This is just as intimate as somebody audibly talking to me. The challenge is discerning between when it's God who is speaking and our own human thoughts, which can be good, so-so, or really bad. Or sometimes we just invent thoughts. Hey, did you hear that? No. That was a figment of your imagination. So I just wanted to point that out, that this is a very rare occurrence and occasion. God wasn't, if you just read the whole Bible, for 4,000 years of Old Testament history, God wasn't talking audibly to everybody every day. It's very rare. That's why it's, it's alarming, it's shocking, it's surprising, it's amazing, it's awe-inspiring, it's fearful, fearful for most people around. Like, whoa, it's like an earthquake. They don't know what's going on. Many fall down in fear over this. Only three times. What does God the Father say? He says, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. What is that? That's basically two Old Testament verses about the Messiah joined together. The first part is from Psalm chapter 2. If you read Psalm 2, what is that? That's a psalm of the inauguration of the King of Kings on earth. 
the son of David, the descendant of David who would rule as king over Israel and over the nations. So half of this, these words are from Psalm 2, and basically here's God the Father saying, you are fulfilling scripture, you are the king of kings promised in Psalm chapter 2, you are the son of David, you're the king of David, you will rule over the house of David, and not only that, you will rule over all the nations because that's what Psalm 2 says. You are the king. You are the ruler. Then the second part, in you I am well pleased, that's the favor of the Father. Where's that from? That's from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42. The emphasis there is on the giving of the Holy Spirit upon the Messiah to empower him in his ministry, not so much as king, but as servant. And Isaiah emphasizes suffering servant. In one proclamation from God the Father, he brings these two realities about the coming Messiah. That the Old Testament saints just thought there was one coming. Yet now we know there's at least two comings, and they are distinct, and they are different. In the first coming, Jesus is the suffering servant. He is lowly. He is obscure. He is rejected. He is murdered. He dies for sin. That's the first coming. The second coming, which is also prophesied in the Old Testament, Jesus comes in glory as a warrior, as a king, to judge his enemies, not to save from sin, to defend Israel, to be a political ruler, a military ruler forever and ever. So here, God the Father takes these two realities about the Lord Jesus Christ and pronounces those two realities upon him. You are my beloved son. You are the king of Israel. You are the son of David. The throne is rightfully yours. You rule over the nations. Not only that, you are the suffering servant. You must die for sin. You must humble yourself. You must be rejected of men, suffering then glory. That's the mission of the Messiah. Jesus began his, mission, uh, his ministry here. Jesus didn't finish his ministry yet. Did you know that? He finished part of it. He accomplished salva- personal salvation for us. Tetelestai, it is finished. But he's not totally finished. He's not done. There are maybe hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah yet to be fulfilled. And they, for the most part, have to do with him coming and reigning in glory. That's our future. That is encouraging. So God the Father himself says Jesus is qualified. He is indeed Messiah and suffering servant on behalf of the world. Let's go on to qualification number two, and that's this genealogy. Do you have a genealogy? Do you know your genealogy? How far back can you go in your genealogy? Some of us can't go back very far in our genealogy. Some of us don't know who our great-grandpa was or maybe even your grandpa. That's question number one. Do you know your genealogy? The answer for most of us would be no. Then the question number two is, do you need to know your genealogy? The answer for, I mean, way back, the answer for most of us is probably no. That that was not true of the Jews in the Old Testament. Uh, That was particularly not true of Jews who were alive in the day of Jesus, Paul, Luke, when they wrote this, before the temple was destroyed, and really before uh, Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead. If you were a Jew, an obedient Jew, a temple-attending Jew, a synagogue-going Jew, a sacrificially obedient Jew, a Torah-reading Jew, a compliant, want-to-be-right-with-Yahweh Jew, then you absolutely had to know your, uh, your genealogy for a lot of reasons as a Jew. This is clear from the Old Testament. You needed to know your genealogy for land allocation, and where you would live as the land was divided up among the 12 tribes of Israel. 
oh, here's where, uh, okay, Israel had a son named Judah. Judah, they're down in the area of Jerusalem. That's kind of important because that's where the temple is. Oh, I want to be in my area of where, in the, I'm, a, I'm from Judah, I want to hang out and live there. So that was important. Uh, Jews also needed to know their genealogy to get property rights and an inheritance. That comes out very clearly in the, the book of Ruth in chapter 3 and 4. If you had rights to something, your inheritance was based on, do you know your lineage? Can you track it back to the source? Uh, you had to know your genealogy for roles of service, particularly how you serve in the community, theocracy of Israel, and, and even serving in the temple, which was so important. And who could do sacrifices? And who could be a priest? Qualifications for priest came from the tribe or the line of Levi. If you were not in that tribe, that wasn't in your genealogy. You have no business messing around with the temple or sacrifices. And there were plenty of Jews that you read in the Old Testament who did that, violated that. Saul did that. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, I believe. And God reprimanded him, punished him for it. So service, very important religious service. Uh, also, the Jews had to know their genealogy for just blessings and cursings from God. Get this one. This is a very helpful one. Many of you, if I asked you how old is the world, you'd say, oh, 6,000 years. Then I ask, well, how do you know that? A lot of times Christians, do, well, I don't know, that's what I heard. Well, uh, Bishop Usher said so. No, that's not the answer. I believe the earth is about 6,000 years old. The only reason I know that or believe that is because it's in the genealogies in the Bible. It, Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 11, and 1 Chronicles chapter 1 through 3, you take those three genealogies, you compare those to Luke chapter 3, and you can come up with the age of the earth very clearly. So Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 11, read it on your own, very clear. Uh, Adam was lived to be 930 years old, and when he was 130, he gave birth to Seth. And then, when, and then Adam lived another, whatever it was, eight, uh, 700 years, and then Adam died. And then Seth, when Seth became 130, he became the father of so-and-so. And then Seth lived another 600 years, and then he died when he was so-and-so, and then he died, and then he gave birth to another son. And his son, Seth's son, his name was, uh, and he lived so many years uh, before he gave a son. So it's very detailed. You can do the math. And Genesis chapter 5 and 11 traces the genealogy from Adam Get this, to Noah. And if you write them all down, and all the years, there's no gaps. You can't fit millions and zillions of years anywhere in the genealogy from Adam to Noah. It is impossible. And we know that Noah lived around 2500 B.C. And then the Bible goes on to give a genealogy. We know how much time there was between Noah and Abraham. We know that Abraham lived 2100 B.C. Abraham is in the genealogy of Matthew and in Luke. They're identical. Then it goes to, and then Matthew and Luke trace the genealogy of Abraham down to David. We know when David lived. The secular, atheistic, humanistic Encyclopedia Britannica knows when David lived, 1000 B.C. It's established historical fact. Luke gives the genealogy from David all the way back down to Jesus. So you, you take the genealogies, it's a no-brainer. Now, Christians, Christians, who want to reject a 6,000-year-old earth, they use theological arguments. They don't want to talk about the genealogies. They don't want to sit down and study the genealogies with you. They don't want to go through the details. They don't want to look at the Hebrew and the Greek. They don't, they don't want to do that. 
Because you can only come to one conclusion if you do that. They don't want to take the Bible literally. Oh, yeah, pff, Genesis, everybody knows that's poetry. Can't take it literally. Ah, no, you know, modern science makes you look like a fool for believing on and on. I know this because this is where I am. At, at the seminary where I teach, I have been teaching a class on Genesis, and we spend, I spend one lecture for three hours on Luke chapter 3. Wait, do I have three hours today? Oh, no, I better speed it up. Sorry. I better give the abridged version. Anyway. So that's just one of the benefits of a genealogy and how valuable it is. Completely laid out in Scripture. Um, and we're going to see that from Luke. Because look at, let's go to Luke chapter 3 real quick. Uh, Luke chapter 3, his genealogy starts at verse 23. Let's go there. Now, when Jesus began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. About 30 years of age. Why is that significant? Uh, I don't know. Luke doesn't say. But it is interesting that in the Old Testament, there were prophets who began their ministry at certain... Ezekiel, for example, the prophet began his ministry at age 30. Didn't have to, but he did. The greatest king in Israel, David. Jesus was the descendant of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 says that God promised David that a great king would come from his loins and be the Messiah. And that's why Jesus was called the son of David. The rightful king of Israel and the world had to come from the loins of David. The greatest king in Israel's history, King David, he began to reign as king at age 30. Ezekiel the prophet, age 30. King David, age 30. And then in your Torah, in the Old Testament, qualifications for priests are given and other men who serve in certain capacities, and the, the, one of the ages given is age 30. So to be a priest, you had to be age 30. To be a prophet, or there were prophets who served at age 30, and David the king, age 30. Could be coincidental, I don't know, but Jesus came as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, didn't he? And he was age 30, and it makes sense that if he was going to have legitimacy among the Jews who had a history... And that if you were less than 30, you were considered an unwise fool of an immature man with no experience. That wouldn't be an issue with Jesus. He was 30 years of age. He reached full maturity. He was a full recognized rabbi. But I don't know that why that says age 30. But we do know that he didn't do any miracles for 30 years of age because John chapter 2 says the first miracle was water into wine and that was after he began his ministry and that was at age 30. So these pseudo-gospels like the Gospel of Thomas where it says he did miracles when he was a teenager when he got mad at his neighborhood friends who were picking on him he'd strike him with lightning and knock him dead or when he's a little kid playing in the mud pile and he makes a mud pigeon as a little kid and he, he blows on it and poof it turns into a real bird and flies away that's ridiculous so he began his ministry at age 30 and then it goes on and begins the genealogy uh, and if you compare we're not going to go to Matthew because we don't have enough time. I'll just tell you the way it is. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy. It begins, Matthew begins his genealogy. Matthew's writing to who? In about 45 A.D., Jesus had been gone for just merely 10 years. Uh, the church primarily is Jewish, Jewish Christians. Matthew is an apostle. He's a Jew. He's writing to Jews. He's writing about Jesus, the king of the Jews. That is his theme. And if he wants to set Jesus apart as king of the Jews, then two men come to mind. That's David the king of kings, and Abraham. That's where Jewish history begins. And so that's where Matthew's genealogy begins and ends. He traces Jesus pretty much back to Abraham through King David. So it's a Jewish genealogy. And if you read very carefully in Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1, it goes from Abraham 
to Jesus, and it says that Jesus basically, his father, actually his mother is Mary, and Mary was married to Joseph, and Joseph's father was named Jacob. So Matthew's genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, is the genealogy of Joseph through his father, Jacob. So that is Jesus' paternal genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, emphasis on Joseph. And because Joseph literally adopted Jesus at his birth to be his own, he had all rights and privileges, and it was completely legal. Jesus was recognized as a legal son of Joseph by adoption. Therefore, that genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 qualifies Jesus as having legitimate credentials to own the right to rule as king through the loins of David back to Abraham, the first Jew. That's why verse 1 says, the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Now, Matthew has a different purpose. His genealogy is different. His, different, his genealogy goes a different direction. He starts with Jesus and goes all the way down to Adam. Matthew starts uh, reverse order and goes backwards. And he has a different purpose. He has all men in his with no, virtually no commentary. Matthew has commentary in his. Luke has no women listed in his. Matthew has some women referenced. And they're all despicable, pathetic, sinful, wicked, evil women who were shown grace by God. Luke doesn't do that. What is Luke's genealogy? It's the genealogy of Mary is what it is. It's literally the bloodline. And it could be, I don't know why God did this. One reason could be, okay, Matthew gave us the legal genealogy that gives him the right to be king through the loin of, loins of Joseph and Joseph's father. But Joseph, everybody knows that Jesus his literal father maybe was not Joseph, and so he was adopted, and who knows who his real father is, and that was in question, and the Pharisees used that against him in John chapter 8, the end of his ministry, when they, they knew that Jesus didn't have a known human father, and so they called him a bastard child and said, you are born of immorality. You're born of porneia. You're disqualified as a Messiah. You're immoral offspring, is what they were trying to say. So the word could have gone out and may have been well known that, yeah, yeah, you have the legal rights through Joseph, but you don't have blood rights. Well, that's Luke. Luke gives Jesus' genealogy through Mary, and guess what? It goes back to David. It goes back to David. Matthew goes back, takes Jesus back to David through King Solomon. Luke takes Mary back to David, the rightful king, through not King Solomon, but Solomon's brother, Nathan. So Jesus came from the loins of Mary through virgin birth. Jesus, as a man, has the blood of Mary. Mary has kingly blood in her veins because she's a direct descendant of David through Nathan. There you go, Theophilus. I don't know if you've heard this rumor going around that Jesus doesn't have a rightful uh, access to the kingly throne because Joseph isn't his literal father and he has no blood back to David. Wrong. Here's Mary. She's in the bloodline of David, the king. I think that's clearly one of the main things that Luke is trying to establish. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, verse 23, and when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. And here's a specific Greek phrase. Being, the New American Standard says, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. And so Luke's trying to write a genealogy. Luke may have written genealogies before, and it was pretty easy. You just, most of them were all written down on records, and you take the records, and 
he was the son of so-and-so, and he was the son of so-and-so, and he was the son of so-and-so, and he was the son of so-and-so. Uh, Matthew says he begat, he begat, he begat. It doesn't mean the son of. It means he was a descendant of, a descendant of, a descendant of. Could be a direct descendant. Could be uh, skip a, ge- a few generations. That's why Matthew could literally say that Jesus was the son of David and the son of Abraham. He was a descendant of, is what it meant in Matthew. Here, uh, Luke's doing something a little different. He's just stacking them in, in order, and he starts with Joseph, and he's going to trace Joseph all the way down to verse 38. He starts at Joseph, who adopted Jesus, and he's going to go all the way down to Adam, the son of God. What is he doing this for? He wants to show that Jesus is a real human, number one, and that Jesus is actually the Savior of the world. He goes past Abraham. Jesus' reach as Savior goes beyond Israel. It goes beyond the borders of Palestine. It goes to the ends of the world, as was proclaimed in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman. This indeed is the Savior of the world. Boy, was that comforting for a mutt of a mixed-up Samaritan woman who the Jews believed had no rights of salvation from Yahweh. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Luke makes that clear, not only in this genealogy through his whole book, He's making references to women, to low-class people, to tax gatherers, several of tax gatherers, Zacchaeus, and on and on. The publican, the prodigal, Jesus' Savior of all. And that is clearly seen in his genealogy. Um, another couple observations about the genealogy in verse 23 was the supposed son of He put that in there because Luke's no doubt struggling. Okay, how do I say that Jesus legally came from Joseph, but wasn't in this, the line. He wasn't the son of Joseph. The word son of is in verse 23. It says the son of Joseph, Huyas, son, literally came from the loins of. Well, he didn't literally come from the loins of Joseph. So that's why he came with this weird Greek phrase, was the supposed son of. Uh, common, common custom is everybody's recognized that he came from Joseph. Everybody believes... Some people are clueless and they just think Joseph is a son, but he wasn't. So let me clarify, Theophilus. Jesus was not the, in the bloodline of Joseph. He was the supposed son of Joseph. He was adopted by Joseph. He's in the bloodline of Mary. And then he picks up Mary's lineage at the end of verse 23 because he says the supposed son of Joseph, but actually of Eli. You know who Eli was? Eli was Mary's dad. And if you have a Bible like mine, like the New American Standard and most other Bibles, where it says in verse 23, listen carefully, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Okay, the son of Joseph. Quios is the word for son. Keep that there. And then it says the son of Eli. You can take a pen and scratch out the word son on the phrase the son of Eli because it's not in the Greek text. It's not there. It doesn't say the son of Eli. All it says is the definite article, the. It's the Eli, or the one of Eli, of Eli, of, and so on and so forth. Same thing in verse 24, where it says the son of Matthat. No, scratch out the word son. It's just the word the. Scratch out the word uh, son and the, the son of Levi, and you go all the way through, even down to verse 38, where it says Adam, the son of, son of God. It, uh, son is not in that phrase. It doesn't say Adam, the son of God. The Greek text just says to theu, the God. He's of God. It's in a form where that's what it means. He is of God. He descended from God. He came directly from God. He's like a son of God. And that article, the, all go back in reference to the word son in verse 23, the son of. So all of these men are the sons of and direct bloodline descendants of Eli, but Joseph is not. 
He's the supposed relation to Jesus. Very important. Then you go through this genealogy of 77 names, 11 groups of seven. Most of the, many of them, we don't even know who they are. They're obscure. But a lot of these we do know because you could take a lot of these and just you can see and compare it to Genesis 5, Genesis 11, and 1 Chronicles 1 through 3. And you say, oh, this is where Luke got this stuff because it's identical and it matches beautifully and perfectly because they're the same. There's very few exceptions. But then when you get to just past uh, David up to, to the time of uh, Zerubbabel at the time of where the Old Testament closes, and you got from 400 to the time of Jesus, you got 400 years of silence, and we don't have the Old Testament telling us who all these guys are and where they came from and Nathan's sons and whatever. How did Luke get that information? Two options. Luke went and talked to Mary because he said he would, and Luke chapter 1 said, I'm going to go talk to the witnesses, eyewitnesses. And Mary probably had the records because if she was a good wife, and she was, and a good mother, she was very organized, and she had a file probably like my wife does of all of our stuff that we need. And then the Spirit of God probably helped fill in the blanks under inspiration. So there's a lot of names we don't even know, but they're real men. They're all men. So a couple other observations about the genealogy here. Um, just so you're aware, there are just some contrasts between Luke and Matthew's genealogy that I didn't already address. Um, or just let me reiterate one more time, summary. Uh, Luke chapter 3, his genealogy is emphasizing Mary's genealogy. Now, you might read a commentary and pick it up and say, oh, Pastor Cliff, that isn't true. They said this is Joseph's genealogy because Joseph is mentioned right there. And I'd say, well, it says Joseph the supposed, and he wasn't. And then you go to Matthew chapter 1, and it says Joseph's father was Jacob, not Eli. And then that's where some commentators say, well, you've got an error in your Bible then. There's a contradiction. No, it's not a contradiction. You have a genealogy that's on the paternal side and a genealogy on the maternal side. And what's wrong with that? Because everybody here has a genealogy on the maternal side and the paternal side. That's not out of the ordinary. We all have grandparents on both sides, whether we know them or not. So that's just something to be aware of as you hear uh, different people talk about that. Then the finally, finally, the last thing that I wanted to point out that maybe Luke was emphasizing here, um, that to me they just jump out of the page. And that is some of the names we don't know, but some of the names we definitely do know that are important, and I've alluded to those already. If you have your Bible there and you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 31, it says the son of Malia, I don't know who that is, the son of Mena, don't know who that is either, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, okay, we know who Nathan is because he's in First Chronicles. Nathan was probably the younger brother, I think, of Solomon. And their mother was Bathsheba. Was Bathsheba the first legitimate wife of King David? No. David committed adultery, stole another man's wife, Bathsheba got her pregnant and then had her husband murdered, and then he lied about it, and then he continued to try to lead on God's behalf over the nation of Israel. That's in the Old Testament. God exposed him. Nathan exposed him, or the prophet exposed him, and then the pregnancy of Bathsheba, of that first child that came from David, that baby died after just being a week old. Then David took in Bathsheba along with his 
eight other wives. It was a violation against God's law, by the way. He was living on disobedience. How could David do that? How could David do that? How could David say he loves God and sin? Uh-oh. Look in the mirror. We do the same thing. If people were new about our private lives, we're writing books on it, you know what people would say 200 years from now? Say the same thing about us. How could they say they loved God and loved Jesus and were Christian and had that sin in their life? Thankfully, God is a God of grace. So David had his son Solomon through Bathsheba, and it was through the loins of Solomon that the Messiah would come and reign as king. But God's promise to David was that the descendant would come from David's loins. He would have the blood of David, be the throne of David. And so when you look in Chronicles, you see that there was Bathsheba had another son. His name was Nathan. And he, that's who's listed here by Luke. That Nathan was one of the sons of David. Therefore, uh, Mary's line literally went back to David and was the rightful king, rightful access to the throne. He, in other words, Jesus had royal blood through Mary. And Jesus makes it clear. And the, the reason I want to point this out is that whether you go to Matthew from Joseph's legal line, Jesus is qualified to be king and Messiah, according to the Old Testament. Or if you go through his bloodline in Luke 3, Jesus is qualified to be Messiah and Savior of the world, fulfilling all the requirements that the Old Testament laid out. And it's interesting that in all the three and a half years of public ministry that Jesus had, as he's continually undermined, exposed, interrogated, assaulted publicly by the leadership of the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, his critics, they assaulted him relentlessly publicly to humiliate him, to discredit him, to ask him questions they thought he would mess up on to stump him publicly and shame him in public name calling remember john 8 they just go through and look at all the names they call him oh you're a samaritan you're a half-breed you're not qualified to be messiah then the other one in john 8 oh you're you're born of porneia you're a bastard child you you're not qualified to be messiah and then the crescendo you're demon possessed jesus you're, you're a child of the devil. You're not qualified to be Messiah. Now, that's just an example in John chapter 8. You look at all the Gospels, and there were many criticisms that they threw at Jesus to try to publicly disqualify him so the people would not follow him. One of the accusations or allegations that they never made publicly, and it's probably the most important one, is, Jesus, you go around saying, you want to be the Messiah, you're the promised king of Israel, then you need to be a descendant of David, and you're not a descendant of David. Do you know that we never hear that in the gospel from his critics, ever? Why? They couldn't say it because it was on record. I, I guarantee, I pro probably when they first find out about this Jesus guy going around claiming to be Messiah and their position as the leadership of Israel is threatened, these scribes, Sadducees, and Pharisees, I, I guarantee the first thing they did is we need to go to the temple, look up the, the records because they were public, and we need to see if this Jesus guy goes back to David to see if he's an imposter. And to their chagrin, oops. Not only on Joseph's side, the legal side, but oops, on the bloodline with Mary. Wow. Maybe that's why for three and a half years, not one time could they say, you are not a legitimate son of David. As a matter of fact, we read just the opposite in the Gospels, don't we? Remember the last week of his life on Palm Sunday? The crowds went out to meet him. Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna, son 
of David. Jesus himself calling him the son of David. Jesus himself confronting the leadership of Israel saying, why is it that the Messiah has to be the son of David? Even demons who confronted Jesus called him son of David. They knew his identity. They knew he was the conquering king and Messiah. So that's just a few highlights from this boring, irrelevant, meaningless genealogy. Isn't it rich? And that's the word of God. And, and all that it tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ and his role as Savior of the world. My heart's desire is if you don't know Jesus, you would embrace him. Why? Because he is the one and only true Savior for sinners. And that's what Christmas is all about. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for this day and the time to, to worship you with the saints, to sing to you and to study your word together. We thank you for preserving the gospel of Luke, how exacting it is about the details of who Jesus is, how it gives us purpose and really meaning of the Christmas season that we can celebrate, worship you because we know you through salvation, being born again through the gospel and Lord willing, we trust and hope that through your Holy Spirit, you prompt us to share this message with others around us, starting with unsaved family members, unsaved colleagues we rub shoulders with, neighbors. Everywhere we go, we need your boldness to do that, Lord. So we trust you for that. And God, where we have planted the seed or we know that the gospel's gone out, hasn't come to fruition, we pray that you would continue to work on the hearts of the people, soften them, that they might be saved. That's our heart's desire, and we know that that's why you came. You came to seek and to save those who were lost, and we thank you for that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.